Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I have just completed my sixth year of teaching in the high school science classroom. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I played bass in a band for 10 years. Professional development should not be restricted to the workday. This is our personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. Today we are drinking a Boulevard Dark Truth Imperial Stout. This is our first repeat beer entry of the show. Which uh, does not bother me in the slightest, as it is one of my favorite stouts. It is, and I am excited to come back to it also. Uh, this is actually a recommendation from a listener who will be joining us here in just a little bit. So I'm excited to get his take on the beer because I'm led to believe he knows a little bit more about beer than we do. So he's going to tell yeah. us all about it. Yeah, he's going to tell us why I like it. <laughs> This month, we're turning our attention back to grading practices. We have kind of had glancing blows on grading practices for several episodes. We did one very early on on the nature of motivation and how our evaluations uh, should be accurate representations of what students can do. And so this month, we're actually going to come head on and talk about standards-based grading because that is a popular topic in education right now. There are some people who like it. There are some people who really don't like it. And so we're going to spend some time debriefing exactly how we might come at standards-based grading and how that might compare to some other grading practices that we've either used in our classrooms or maybe that we know about from across our professional network. So this month, let's do SBGs. Yeah, full disclosure, I'm a big fan of SBGs. I've been uh, navigating a standard system for a few years now. Every year it looks a little different than it did before, but uh, I, I'm sort of comfortable working in this space. So when we talk about standards-based grades, I think it's worth defining what it is we're discussing because at first blush, I usually don't tell people that I do standards-based grades because what I think of as my particular flavor uh, is a little bit divergent from the most popular versions. Uh, but I think that there's a core philosophy that we can highlight and then some of the variations uh, that you might see across different practices because really it, there's no one-size-fits-all for almost anything in a classroom. And so um, what are standards-based grades? In its purest form, that a standards-based grading system is one that acknowledges proficiency for certain performance or knowledge objectives, co contrasting with not proficiency in those performance objectives. And in some pure Elysium of standard-based gradings, there aren't even necessarily ratings or associations or grades or letters associated with this. It is either, yes, you are proficient in these things, but you are not proficient in those things. Uh, and so, one of those strengths about them is that they help the student and the teacher identify areas of growth uh, where they as a group can or as a as a as a partnership identify the standards that we haven't meet and that's where we need to invest our time together to improve mm -hmm. If you look at a, a typical gradebook using legacy practices, you see homework assignment one, homework assignment two, test one, lab one, project one. And so the organization of student marks are associated with tasks. They're associated with the things that were done in the classroom. And so uh, that often means that there's a lot of redundancy or interdependence between those evaluation marks. It ultimately, it obscures what a student does well and what a student does not do well because those tasks are complex 
indicators rather than being clear indicators. And so the transition to standards-based grades, I think at its, at its underlying philosophical tenet is that we rewrite the columns in our gradebook to be associated with specific learning standards or learning outcomes or learning targets. So instead we have math reasoning skill one and math reasoning concept one and then we have math reasoning skill two and so while there are relationships between those columns we are precisely talking about learning targets that might have multiple uh, growth opportunities throughout the classroom or multiple opportunities to demonstrate mastery of those concepts and so we're no longer associating what's in the gradebook with tasks but are rather associating them with learning targets I think that's what the core of standards-based grading is and there are a couple of other practices that are then often associated with that the most common of which is collapsing the grade scale. So instead of having a 100 point percentage based evaluation mechanism, almost always whenever I see standards based grading implementation, you see those association with learning targets and a collapsing of the scale down from a 100 point grading system to something much more manageable and thus I think much more accurate, something like a four point grading scale or a seven point grading scale, almost always less than 10. And there, if you want to know more about just what standards-based grading is, I found a pretty good description of what it typically looks like at uh, Common Goal Systems, Inc. Uh, they have a website, teacherease.com. So I've got a link up on the show site. If you have no idea what standards-based grading is, pause now and go check out that link so you can get kind of the gist of what we're talking about because we're going we're gonna to move on from here. As we acknowledge that there are some hassles and things that you have to overcome, let's get you know philosophically behind this. Why is it worth switching to standards-based grading if there's a bunch of extra work involved in doing so. is because if we stay within our current legacy grading uh, paradigm, uh, we have a problem of purpose. The current grades serve a, a, a variety of purposes, communication, self-evaluation, sorting and selecting, and motivation, and program evaluation. I'm currently referring to a document written by Ken O'Connor and Wick Wormley, uh, published in 2011, talking about uh, some critiques of current grading practices. And the problem is that when your purpose is diluted among so many different uh, possible avenues, then you really kind of fail to achieve any of those with uh, precision. So we need to get on the same page and then maximize whatever that purpose is. So if goals are to help us identify what students can do, then that should be the, or what they know, that should be the only thing that they do. And Rick Wormley in particular, he's done a lot of writing on this subject. And so our our fundamental prompt for discussing in this month's episode is going to be one of his more recent articles, uh, which it pulls some content from Fair Isn't Always Equal, a book that I've read and you've read much of and was discussed frequently in our department. Uh, but he's got a lot of good work on this, su on this subject. But I had a little bit of a hard time finding some of the actual experimental research uh, that illuminates how and why standards-based grading ought to happen. And so we're going to talk about some of uh, Rick Wormley's work, but I would really love it if if the listeners shared some of the research that's been coming out recently on standards-based grading, because I actually had a hard time finding some of the literature that uh, that could illuminate this subject for us. Uh, so we're looking at uh, Fair Isn't Always Equal, which is uh, the title of the book, Three Grading Malpractices, which is really an excerpt from some of the content in that book. And so he makes, a, he, Rick Wormley, makes some arguments for some things that need to stop in our classroom. And these things are going to push us towards standards-based grading practices. I feel, I feel like I'm not yet getting into the heart of the issue.
I think the I think the underlying philosophical tenet of having independent measures in your gradebook that give you a as precise a possible as accurate a possible measure of what students can do right now i accept that and i think that's what standards based grading is about i am less persuaded by the collapsing measures and by um some of the other things that are associated with standards based grades and so i think that there's a space to allow some argumentation for folks who want to keep doing a percentage-based scale or um or things like that i think that i am ready to accept that we should have learning targets directly reflected in our gradebook. I'm not here to measure what I'm not here to measure whether students have complied with me. I'm not. I'm, that's not my business. That's not what I'm here for. Um, but I don't think I'm ready to argue for standards-based grading to the exclusion of some of the ways that we've been doing things because I think it depends on how that manifests in your classroom. I agree that there is a wide field of possibilities for how to make standards-based grading work within a variety of systems. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we narrowly defined standards-based grading is this, this is what your gradebook looks like, and this is the only way that it works, then what we're going to do is we are going to prevent or dissuade people from exploring how they can change their grading practices to approach a more focused purpose for those grades. Because mm -hmm. really, that's what we want. We want the grades to philosophically represent student capabilities. Because I think the heart of the argument in this in this literature, and I think the argument that we're both going to make, is anytime we are tempted to make some sort of claim, we might hear a colleague say, well, this student is earning an F. They don't they actually know more than that, but they're earning an F. We got a problem. Like if if the grade comes with a that's not actually what they know, we got a problem. Like the, I don't know what it is, but that's not what should be the case. Right. So I think I think if we point out things like this first item on the list is withholding supports when students need it. If we're in a points based system, if we're accumulating points and so we are hesitant to offer students, uh, if we have a couple of students who need um, a more accessible piece of reading or they need a few more days to work on a particular assignment for the practice or they need a second attempt at some sort of milestone evaluation that's going to provide them feedback to be ready for a test. Uh, if I'm working on a points-based system that is evaluating tasks, then I am worried because that might not be fair to all students. If one student had to do it once and others had to do it three times, then that we might have some equity issues. But if we're focusing on learning tasks and the targets associated with them, so can students do X? If this student did it in one in one try and this student did it in three tries, it, that, it's irrelevant. There's nowhere in the gradebook for that to be a problem. And so ultimately what it comes back to is liberating teachers to not be victims of their own system. It gives us more license to exercise our judgment to make sure everybody has equal access to the learning opportunities until they have learned the material. And so I think that that's possible in legacy practices, but it's a lot more um, facilitated in more standards-based environments. And so it's it's associated with the behavior. But I think that that is not necessarily... There are standards-based systems that are very rigid and uh, rigorous and inflexible and unforgiving to students. And there are also some traditional gradebook practices where teachers feel very comfortable ex executing that license. So I think... Um, what you're talking about, exercising that judgment, having the freedom to exercise that judgment is an important part of this grading situation, which I believe legacy practices uh, kinds of obfuscate. Uh, we like to believe that we are being fair when we are being objective.
we would we would pride ourselves on being able to create a system that can provide uh, an assessed student capacity while being objective. That would be an amazing thing. Unfortunately, we fool ourselves into thinking that our gradebook and our practices are truly objective, when in fact we are already constructing all of the uh, boundaries of that gradebook. And since we are doing that ourselves, that gradebook is inherently subjective. We need to release the illusion of objectivity and embrace the responsibility of our subjectivity. If we are not comfortable with a, a call that we've made, then we need to reassess. We need to look at that student again. We need to discuss with that student again. Maybe we need to do that with our class again. But we need to accept ownership of the subjective calls that we are making. Is this student proficient with this? Do they, can they communicate or illustrate a mastery understanding of this concept? If so, I need their grade to reflect that. I think that your wording there is important, accepting the responsibility for the subjectivity because numbers don't make us objective. Even your, your beloved multiple choice uh, normalized and validated instrument has some bias in it. It's going to leave some students behind. There was an instance where that really hit me square in the face uh, a couple of years ago where I was teaching a freshman biology course and I had a student in class who uh, she was very willing, she was engaged um, she was she is not from our country, she's from, she's from somewhere else so English was not her primary language and I was doing random calls so I had a question and I rolled her seat and so I asked her to respond and she paused and she waited for a few moments and eventually she said I'm sorry, can you come back to me? And I said, yes, I can. Thinking in my head, she just doesn't want to answer. And so I, I immediately dumped that out of my working memory and moved on. And so uh, some other students answered the questions. I asked a couple more questions and the conversation was about to move on when she raised her hand. And so I came back and said, yes, what can I do for you? And I had already completely forgotten that interaction. And she says, I'm ready to answer that question now. And I, 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 had, I know I visibly paused. I was, great, give me, let's hear it. And she articulated this wonderful response to the question I had, I had actually asked, and this was several this was several minutes before. And she it was thoughtful and it was connected to our prior experiences. And she clearly was speaking um, slowly but deliberately. She had thought about what she was going to say, and it was wonderful. And I, as I reflected on that after the fact, I really was floored by language is going to be a barrier for this student in a way that I didn't fully understand because she uses. English effectively, but slowly. So like when she writes, clearly she had been spending more time than most of my students to articulate something that I was assuming was happening on par with all of my other students. That student needed extra time to construct a long response. But when given that extra time, they were able to provide a mastery illustration of their concepts. If I want them to know something, if I want them to be able to do something, it doesn't matter if they are able to do it in September or they're able to do it in November. If a student is working diligently, practicing, if they are trying, if they are edit revising, improving their practice, if they are coming in for support and ardent about their progress and they get there in November, then they got there. They have that understanding. They have achieved it. So let's replace whatever earlier assessment they grade they had with one that now is a better measurement of their capacity. They can do it. They can do it in November. Then in, let's change their grade in November. 
So when they come in and ask, I got a three on that and I really wanted a four, you res- we should respond with, well, what didn't we master? How can we improve what we did? What did we do well? And how much further do we have to go? What do we need to do to improve? That And as a teacher, that's your job. That feedback is critical for their growth. Mm-hmm. One of the things Wormley suggests is that if you are going to give extra credit, then the extra credit needs to also reflect mastery of the standard. And if you do, if you if you have created an additional task that shows representational mastery of a standard, then you could just offer that as a, a choice to everybody. They could have done either of these two things uh, from the get-go. And if one of the, if they try one and it doesn't work, well, then let them try the other thing. Uh, it actually gives you and them freedom to uh, unlock yourself from the uh, the typical grading practices. Mm. I think that's one of the most exciting things about standards-based grading is as you develop more experience. So if this is your first year doing standards-based grading, don't go out and develop six assessments for every one of your standards. That doesn't need to happen. But as you're developing more and more material over time, you can start to open it up to students and say, all of my assessments that I think are good measurements of a student being able to do the thing I'm expecting them to do, here are three lab choices that I have done over the course of my career and all of them are enzymatic labs so here you can do an amylase lab or here you can do a catalase lab or here you can do uh i don't know what's the third one pectinase pectinase lab so pick an enzyme and go do some enzymatic stuff i have the materials for all of them i've accumulated and then come back to me and show me what you know about enzymatics that could be really liberating because you can have crosstalk between students and you can have different ways of them presenting what they know from their experiment because they're all leading to the same emerald city at the end of that path and so there are all sorts of ways for students to get there and that promotes student autonomy that promotes student choice that promotes student agency and sense making and that's the good stuff ladies and gentlemen I mean, that's what we're in the room to do is here are your choices and let me be your guide as you execute judgment in that space and try to evaluate the quality of your choices. I don't know if this will make the tape, but I don't want to go without discussing it is that I'm in a professional Slack channel and someone was asking some questions about um, 100 point scales and 50s and zeros and being mandated to give 50s instead of zeros and, and the reasonableness of that. One of the things about standard ex- based grading is some people have a lot of control over what their grade book looks like and some people don't have a lot of control over what their grade books look like. So an argument for the 50 point scale as in 50 to 100 instead of 0 to 100 giving 50s for for non-compliance. If you are in a standards based and let's say 100 is complete mastery and 85 is near mastery and 75 is not mastery and 65 is nascent where is the where is the f well it, on a 100 point scale the f is 60% the floor of the f at 0 makes it 50% more weighty than every other division in that scale uh so i'm going to go back to um O- O'Connor and Wormley's uh, publication in 2011 because uh, this jumped off the page at me again even as I was reading uh, this this seminal work that they published. The second thing, I think it's the second thing, that, uh, that the authors argue for in this setting is accuracy of a grade. And so they say, do not average your grades. Yeah. Don't average your grades in the first place. If you have interdependence of your grades, then you have multiple learning targets intermingling across multiple assessments. And so you have bad measurements already. Like, don't do that in the first place. 
then the very next argument is don't use a zero for non-compliance or for 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 whatever large considerable failure because of its dramatic effect on averaging don't average in the first place like we've already covered that so if you accept the original argument that you shouldn't be averaging then you're not going to have very many grades in your gradebook in the first place and there might be meaning between a 20% failure and a 40% failure. If you have a good measurement, that might happen. Now, if you collapse it down to the smaller grading scale, then none of this argument has any meaning in the first place, right? So if you've got a smaller grading scale, then I don't know, go have a piece of pie and come back in a few minutes. But if you're doing the, the percentage grading scale, like I did, I never did go to the, to, the, to the smaller grading scale, there might be meaning in having that space from zero to a 60 for failure to give some information on where they are in this pathway to success. And there might be an argument for having a higher threshold before I'm willing to say, yes, you have enough mastery to be able to progress in our larger school system. I, I, cannot, I cannot rebut the don't average position. If you're not averaging, this is not a problem. In fact, if you go to the, the Elysium system of you have proficiency or you're not, you could argue the grades are either zero or a hundred, period. And that would be fine. That I, I totally get that. Uh, but many of us are compelled to work within an averaging system, mm -hmm. in which case it is our responsibility then to mitigate our navigation of that system to make the grades as effective as possible. And if you are locked into that system, so we make the do not average argument first, and then, but if you're stuck in an averaging system, here is the problem with zeros. So you're right, it's a concession. It is an imperfect um, approach, uh, but some of us must work within an imperfect approach currently, and maybe maybe we can change our grade books in ways that we are not aware of now. But if you are stuck in that system, then uh, Doug Reeves 2004 uh, is referenced in this O'Connor Wormley document uh, suggests that if your school has a 4.0 grading system, zeros are equivalent to a negative six on that scale. And that is an absurd system. Now, a 4.0 grading system is an average-based system. It is. And all of my students have GPAs that are, that are, that are uh, on that scale. And some might argue that having a 5.0 on a 4.0 system is as equally ridiculous, but uh, we'll set that aside for another day. I would say that the zero, I am still anti-zero uh, as long as you're in this system. If you want to be the technically correct position, which Ralph is, and if, if you are... Well, I, I think I, I'm fond of analogies. I wrote several analogies down in my, note, in my show notes today. Uh, I think of it as if we're going to go to the bottom of the ocean, it's way the heck down there, mm -hmm. and it's hard to get there. You should be in a submarine. Not very many of us have access to a submarine. Right. You should be in a submarine. If you're not in a submarine, scuba gear is going to get you somewhere. But if you're actually in a submarine, you shouldn't be wearing scuba gear. Like that, you should just be in a submarine. So I think this is a similar discussion of, I. there are a lot of folks who need to really take a hard look at the role of zeros because you still have interdependence in your gradebook and you still are forced to deal with uh, percentages. And there's only so much control that some of us have over our gradebook. I think that all of your points are reasonable. So if we're living in the real world, then there's going to be a great place for a lot of folks to do 50% uh, instead of zero if we don't have turned in grades. But there are some folks who are currently really wrestling with that topic of a zero a zero is appropriate for X, Y, and Z. And so I want to validate some of those positions of there, I think, is an argument for a zero in some grade books. 
that are already robustly implementing some of these other principles. So don't wear scuba gear if you're in the submarine, but not very many of us are in the submarine, so you yeah. might need scuba gear. Now we do other stuff. We're on one. tape. We're Introduce <laughs> this and then I'll sing. I'll, sing. I'll respond. <laughs> so our our second segment is actually a recommendation from us because we got some we got some fantastic feedback from the authors of our primary segment last month. They recommended to us another paper uh, that Dr. Mons uh, published. So we read her paper, who it, and she is an author of last month's segment also. Uh, so we read Supporting Teachers to Negotiate Uncertainty for Science, Students, and Teaching by Dr. Mons and Dr. Suarez. This felt like going to church. <laughs> this felt like you go to church and there's a sermon that says, this is the way it should be and this is what you should be doing. And you're like, yeah, that's the way it should be and that is what I should be doing. I'm so sorry I'm not doing it some other way. <laughs> I feel bad that I just strayed from this in any way that I strayed and I wish to come back to be in the fold. This was like I don't I think that like they only used the word inquiry like three times, but this was really about how do we promote inquiry in a second grade classroom? And it turns out it's the same as you promote it anywhere else. Turns out. <laughs> it's pretty great. This was a, a wonderful resonant read. To put a little context into this, they started their PD uh, with uh, seven second grade teachers from a particular district, and they gave them uh, a system where crickets were living in a habitat, and they asked them to explore the system and ask questions about the system and ask questions about the crickets. And this event, uh, this is sort of a phenomenon approach. Let's give them a phenomenon, have them make observations of a phenomenon, and then have them explore the phenomenon. Uh, and it allows them to, it wasn't necessarily an opportunity to provide discrepant events or challenge their notion, but it was definitely inquiry. What do we know about this? What do we not know about this? And what can we do about that? Uh, sure. So they, they defined scientific uncertainty early in the paper uh, to say there are these uh these scientific and engineering practices in the NGSS framework. And they tell us to do things like ask questions. But if we just have students plop them down in front of crickets and say, ask questions about those crickets right now, they're not actually asking questions in a way that represents the scientific skill that we're trying to grow in them. And so we have to provide them a space for scientific uncertainty, the way scientists experience uncertainty as they're pursuing new knowledge so that they can understand when and how to ask questions when there is an ambiguous space in front of them. They're not sure exactly where they're going. They're not sure exactly what's going on in front of them. And so how do they ask meaningful questions to create structure in a space that is lacking structure? So it's not just about isolated investigations. It's not just about isolated numerical analysis, but about choosing and deploying those scientific practices in an ambiguous space that reflects and prepares them for operating in the amb ambiguous spaces of professionals. So their first recommendation that I think was the biggest one was the uh, was to use complex phenomena and 
that resonated with me because I know that's a big focus in our state. I know Lizette Burks, who uh, who leads the science curriculum um, efforts in our state over at the Kansas Department of Education. This was something that was a really big priority for her when I spoke with her very recently is anchoring in complex phenomenon is something that can be a little bit scary for teachers, especially teachers at the younger grades who maybe don't have as much experience or training in scientific spaces. But having a complex but accessible phenomenon is a rich and vital opportunity for students to start executing agency within this uncertain space. So what is a complex phenomenon versus a more typical anchoring experience? This district had a particular curriculum kit for science. And in that curricular kit, one of the uh, organism habitat interaction explorations involved the teacher setting up crickets living in a variety of environments observing what happened in those environments and then constructing explanations for why those happened in that happened in those environments here's a cricket in this environment it's a terrible environment the cricket suffers here's a cricket in a great environment it's it's great so students tell me what's going on here in that model the teacher made all of the decisions the teacher created all of the environments and uh, the teacher maintained all of the variables the contrast would be giving the students an illustration or, or, or a demonstration of here are some crickets in an environment. Let's look at all of the things in this environment. Like a rich environment with like plenty of stuff, possible hiding places, other organisms, like a really Ross, rich... moss, running water, yeah. uh, uh, available access to air, different complex lighting. So the more variables you present in that the more avenues they can begin to consider the environments. And when you let them consider the environment and respond to what they're thinking, you're giving them greater ownership of the consideration of that environment. And so I think the the thing that is the important distinction is that you've got to give the students one onion. Like it's got to be one thing that is immediately accessible. I know that that is an onion. So I look at this complex environment, there are crickets in it, I know they can live there, and I know that they need water, so the water matters. They are immediately drawn to some aspects of it, but as they look more closely and as they start to collect more detailed observation, they start to think, hmm, there, there's shadows over here and there's more direct lighting over here. I wonder if that affects temperature. Well, the, the water over here is coming out of some mud, so the water might be a little cooler. I wonder if that, I wonder if that's correlating with where they're found. And so as you look more closely, you can peel that onion and you can start to get at some of the underlying layers and there have to be many layers in the best phenomena. There's a good example that I had from a colleague of mine last week who he's a he's one of our math guys and he is known for how many onions he keeps in his pocket every time uh, at all times. And so we were sitting at dinner with a couple of math students so he dropped one immediately on the table for them that I loved. If there are 29 coins on a table, you know that 11 of them are heads but the room is perfectly dark and you have no way of knowing, not by touch, not by prediction, nothing. You have no way of knowing which 11 coins are heads. Divide those two coins into two groups of any size and you have the ability to flip any coin you wish so that both groups have the same number of heads. 
you can immediately start to process that question. I understand heads and tails of coins. I understand separating coins into groups. And so you can immediately start tinkering with options. And as you continue to think about that problem, more and more complexities arise of relationships between uh, flipping and non-flipping and asymmetrical group size. And so how does that affect, how does that relate to the number of heads I know there are? And so you start to get deeper and deeper into all of the complex relationships between the characteristics of that system. And so while I can jump in and start trying things immediately, I can reveal through increased and sustained investigation additional complexities as I get further and further into the problem. In addition to providing a complex phenomenon, they suggested that we should stress the iterative nature of science. One of the proclivities of the teachers, and I, though they kind of suggested this was especially true of elementary school teachers, I don't necessarily think that's though. So. I think that's true of everybody, is that they wanted their kids to be able to do the science right. And so there is a process and there is a step-by-step -step nature to, to how that they're supposed to do it. And we want to make sure that their procedures are generating valid data. So we've got to make sure we got to avoid this confounding variable and that confounding variable and all of those things. One, there is not a step-by-step -step nature to science and, and attempting to, to promote that is a fallacy about science itself, which is basically an entire another episode. But two, the value isn't in telling them how to do the procedure. The value is in them doing the procedure, analyzing that it is imperfect, and deciding how to improve it. That is resonant with the authentic science experience. So you can tell them, avoid doing this because you're going to have a confounding variable, or they can discover that it's a confounding variable, and they've enriched their schema and their understanding of relationships, and then they're forced to invest in how to improve their process. Yeah, we've got to stop fearing student errors, especially as we acquire greater and greater experience and we can more reliably predict student errors. I know students are going to mess that up and I'm going to let them mess it up. My ability to predict that error is not valuable to them. It's just not valuable to them. And I think that's particularly exciting for elementary school teachers, for folks who are teaching the younger grades, because it basically says, let the students play. Like, that's great news, right? That's going to be a lot of that's going to be a lot of fun for them as they start to make insights and they start to make revisions to what they're doing. So there was one concern that I had as I was reading this particular section um, is I am always hesitant to make a recommendation or a should be do more of something because if spend more time on something is always the answer we'll never be able to do everything but that's this is really a, this is really a situation where we're saying spend more time on something and i think i, I think i'm going to commit to that i'm going to say we have to spend more time on something well no it's it means commit to your priorities uh right so so what i think i'm coming back around to is don't waste your time telling them how to do an experiment okay Okay, I'm with you now. Don't waste your time telling them how to do six experiments in a year. Invest your time letting them figure out how to do three experiments in a year. Boom. Okay. I, I love this sermon. I'm again at church. I love it. You're right. This paper, though we've been talking about how to implement inquiry in the classroom, this paper is actually supporting teachers to negotiate uncertainty for science students and teaching. This is about... Uh, professional development for teachers. How do we encourage teachers to adopt inquiry approaches in their classroom? There are a lot of parallels that were employed here 
uh, that resonate with the discussion that Ralph and I had in an episode of Life of the School, which will be released June 2018. On that podcast, uh, we discussed the importance of having discussions, small group, individual, one-on-one discussions about our practices in our classroom. And the PD model that they are promoting here coincides with lots of the things that we say in that particular episode of the Life of the School podcast. Though these individuals were not in each other's classroom, a part of this PD included deconstructing videotape of each other's classrooms, which is, you know, uh, an estimate of doing the same thing. So I see you teaching, I see your interactions with students, I see your in vivo decision-making processes. Let's deconstruct those. How could we, if we could relive it, how would we do it better? So that they can reflect and become better is an effective practice for changing teacher behaviors. There were folks who said, I'm not sure I want to or can or uh, or am inclined to make a change that we're discussing. Then I see it happen in somebody's room and I say, okay, I can envision myself doing some of that or I can see a version of that or I can see a way that that can shape my practice. And that change would not have happened without actually seeing it going on in somebody else's classroom. And that happened more than once in the narratives that were described in this paper. Uh, So it's not just that people are providing feedback to the folks who are on the video, but the video, the presence in somebody's classroom, gives me an avenue to see something that I might do myself that would not have changed me if I had not had access to that vision. This is better with all of you. Okay, for our third segment, we are going to do some peer review, but we're going to change up some of the format a little bit because we actually have a peer on the show this month. Uh, we have Aaron Matthew, who is a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Aaron has been a high school science teacher for 22 years and was named the NABT Outstanding Biology Teacher for the state of Massachusetts in 2015. In 2016, he started the Life of the School podcast, uh, which we were just on a few days ago, uh, where he interviews life science teachers from around the country about their teaching practices and goals. Welcome, Aaron. Hey, guys. Uh, Hello. uh, So, in our new peer review, we're, uh, we're, we want to get a, a firmer grounding in what's going on in people's classrooms because we get to talk about our rooms frequently, but uh, we want to know more about what other teachers are doing and how they're incorporating best practice into their classroom. We were engaged in a conversation on the Slack where we were starting to talk a little bit about, really, we're just talking about curriculum. I mean, I think that would be the broader statement, and that prompts the question to ask sort of how do I approach my curriculum yeah, because a few episodes ago in 009, we were talking about building curriculum around these threshold concepts and how uh, big ideas and organizing around them can uh, give some incremental improvement to student understanding of connections between those concepts. Uh, but we we're curious how, how you and your biology classroom structured your curriculum and around what you built your larger units. Yeah, so I guess the the... The answer is that, um, like, you know, we all are, we're sort of a work in progress. Um, so it's going to be a little bit more of an aspirational answer than, a, like, you know, something I'd want my students to come back and say, this is 100% the way he runs his class. <laughs> but um, the, the, the fact is, is that I generally feel that uh, questions are at the heart of any good science. Um, and so I try to focus my curriculum um, both a hand and uh, hand in glove with a combination of questions 
and learning objectives. So either I try to create scenarios where I look at the learning objectives and try to find out, you know, what's a lab or an activity or something like that that will spark students to generate questions, or I try to come up with engaging questions that will spark, you know, student discussion and students to follow up and develop better questions and more inquiry about the topic. So for me, questioning is so important to science um, because, you know, you never stop asking questions in science. And so my curriculum development's always around questions. So as you're trying to decide between the different questions, you're crafting those fundamental questions that organize your curriculum. Uh, how, what do you use as the guiding principles to choose one question over another? Yeah, so, so in the past, what I would have said is, um, what I would do is I would look at the learning objectives that we have in front of me, and then I would try to come up with a question or a prompt that I think would help students get at the root of that. Um, and, you know, right now I'm just using my vast uh, age and experience as a crutch um, of knowing the kinds of questions that kids tend to ask around a certain topic. And so historically, that's what I would do is I would present learning objectives and I'd ask students, do you understand this learning objective? And then would say, no, I would try to get a question that could allow us to dive more deeply into that topic. Um, when we were having a little bit of a discussion, uh, when I had you guys on, on my show and you guys asked me about an experience, I actually talked about that, that I've moved to a point where I ask my students about our learning objectives using I can statements. And when I get the feedback from students, that's exactly what I do. I take the feedback of, oh, I don't, I can't do X from a, from a percentage of my students. And I go, oh, they can't do that. Why can't they do that? Let me ask them a question that will open up this concept and will lead into some rich discussion so that we'll dive deeper into this topic. That sounds good that... for two reasons. One, it's inquiry driven. The questions of the students matter. And two, it's responsive that they have a stake in guiding how your classroom uh, proceeds, which is, those are fantastic qualities. Yeah, but sort of to be self-critical and self-reflective, your, your opening question, which I, I hopefully I deftly avoided, which is how do you use phenomena, which is, I hope you noticed, I didn't bring it up at all, um, because I think that that's actually a, a significant weakness for me. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been to you know, professional development uh, that Paul Anderson ran, where he shows us a phenomena, and then we brainstorm out questions, and we go through this iterative process of really diving deep and getting to that point over a couple of days. And that's a, an experience I've tried to model with some of my classes, um, but I, I, I'm really uncomfortable at that in doing that. And it's something I need to continue to experience um, really developing phenomena. I think the one place where I do it well would be in labs, where I know that I'm going to show a sort of a baseline materials and methods of, you know, when you drop these little yeast spheres in uh, hydrogen peroxide, they drop down to the bottom and they float up to the top. And then that phenomena allows me to ask a bunch of questions and then open up a bunch of stuff. So I definitely do that, but very much in a, I close the box, the inquiry box a lot so that I, I control a narrative about what I want them to open up to. I don't think I go to full broad inquiry based off of phenomena um, particularly well at this point. I didn't like any of that. All right, let's talk about the beer. Yeah, how was the beer? Um, so it's very. It's, I mean, it is a. It's a. It's a stout. Um, it's a. It's a chocolate stout. It's an imperial stout. Um, I think it's a really well crafted stout. Uh, I know you guys drank this on. What did we say? This is a, you did, drank this on what, episode seven, 
So um, a 10% beer, it's hard to hide that alcohol. And even behind the darkness of this, um, I think the thing that's so most subtle about this is that um, – uh, the it's very low um, bitterness to it from a um, from any of the corners of bitterness, and I think the alcohol sweetness comes across, and that's actually what masks it because there is a backbone to this that has from the hops, and there's also that sort of acrid bitterness that you get from a roasted barley, which you're supposed to get in a stout, which is when I say it's a stout, it's a stout. But you're right, the chocolate notes come forward, and I think it's the alcohol sweetness that brings that perception forward, so that you're not getting a traditional caramel malt sweetness from this, but that alcohol backbone that's in this beer is bringing that chocolate up, particularly as it warms up. I didn't notice the chocolate as strong when I started the beer, but as I'm now, you know, 14 ounces uh, or, you know, 10 ounces into 12 ounces of this beer, uh, that chocolate note comes forward. And I think that the reason is you're getting a little bit of that sweetness from the alcohol. So. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> no, you could not have. <laughs> um, yeah, I can talk about education, but I can also talk about beer a lot. Uh. Say, that's what a beer expert sounds like, ladies and gentlemen. We said in our framing episode, we are novices who are blundering through our beer explanations. And that's what an expert sounds like, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We really appreciate you listening to us. Uh, jump in and give us some comments. How do you do grading, or what research do you know about that guides your grading practices? Uh, check us out on twopipeplc.com. Uh, we really want your feedback, especially if you've got some of that research. Or you check us out on Podbean. They're uh, one of the many podcasting apps that are out there, and you can download it on your phone or you can listen to it on the computer, but they're a, a great service that has our has our show. Uh, subscribe on there to make sure you get every month's episode when it comes out regularly. Otherwise... Discuss research, struggle well, and stay curious.